And this morning we are looking at James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Um, And I will just go ahead and read those verses for us this morning. Okay, James 4, 1 through 10. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world's world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your, heart, your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good morning. How we doing? Um, when I first uh, started looking into my faith, and when I was in college about maybe four years ago, I came home one winter break, and my mom was like, oh, so does this mean you're going to be a pastor now? You know, and I hit her with that strong, uh, never, you know, I'm like, uh, I will never be the case, never be a pastor. But here I am, not even 10 years later, standing up in front of an amazing congregation about to give uh, uh, this sermon. And my mom's actually in the crowd, came from Omaha. And so it's just kind of crazy how, they uh, yeah, give it up for her. Um, kind of crazy how things end up playing out. I'm still not a pastor, but uh, I figured that since this is kind of the introductory sermon for me, I'll be preaching here at Trinity. Um, occasionally, I'm actually a pastoral intern with Trinity. I work on staff with a student organization, a student ministry on campus called STUMO. And so I've been in Columbia for a couple years, and um, it's a privilege to be able to serve alongside Trinity. I love being a part of the church, uh, be able to serve alongside you guys in the community, um, and, and just in general pursue the like-minded goal of becoming like Jesus and making him known. And so um, I kind of wanted to preface this time with you know, I don't have a, a lot of special angles. You know, I don't have a, a lot of perfect illustrations, you know, for this time. But um, what I do have is just uh, the Holy Spirit and God's word. And um, my goal for right now in this time is just to keep the Bible, the Bible. Um, and so and I just pray that God would uh, open our eyes to his word as we look into James 4. So let me pray for us. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, God, we just we do thank you for this morning. God, we pray for this time. We pray that um, you really would just reveal yourself to us through your word. Um, as we look into James 4, Father, we pray that we would just see clearly what you're communicating to us. God, we would reflect on our own life, God, and that um, we'd love you more as a result. In your name we pray. Amen. One of the most impactful things for me when thinking about scripture and wanting to understand what's going on in scripture is looking at the context of who it was getting written to, right? And so we think about James, who James was writing this to, what was true of the people he was writing this to. In the series, we've talked about the people James was writing to was an oppressed people. We've talked about them probably being poor. Um, we can look at the scripture and the verbiage that James uses in, in, in some of these chapters, like chapter one, consider it pure joy, my brothers. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, we can assume that they're going through some hard times. 
right? And we can assume that they are strong believers. James says, my brothers, you know, we know that they are walking with God. They need some encouragement. And so I was actually reading, um, I was actually reading John MacArthur. He's a New Testament scholar. And in regards to chapter four, this is kind of how he paints the picture of what was going on, what was also true of that body uh, of believers in James. He says, we might say in terms of where James is writing that he has in mind professing Christians. So we might say that James is writing to people who are professing Christ, people who attach themselves outwardly to the covenant people of God, namely the church. So people who outwardly say that we are attached, but they apparently maintain some interest and some verbal commitment to God and Christ, and yet they hold a deep affection for the evil system. So we can say what John MacArthur says that James is writing to in this chapter is they apparently maintain some interest, some verbal commitment to God and Christ, and yet they hold a deep affection for the evil system. And so one reason why I love looking at who James is writing to is because oftentimes I really resonate with them. And so then what James is communicating to them, I'm like, wow, you're communicating to me. And in a lot of ways, I think it's good for us to to think about that because that's when James starts off um, in this. He says, he says, you adulterous people. Verse four, he kind of goes in, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? He says, you adulterous people. Why does he say that? Well, they are identifying outwardly with God. They are identifying and saying that, saying words, I love God. Of course I do. But inwardly, what's going on is their affections, what they desire is not for God. It's actually for what the world wants. So James, like you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means hatred toward God? And what happens is our minds, oftentimes our minds will claim Christianity. But then since our desires are off, what we really want our desires are pretty connected to our hearts. So what we really want and live out of is not necessarily Christianity. It's not necessarily what God wants. And so Jesus had pretty strong language about this. Jesus actually pretty much drew this through a straight line through this. He said, hey, you are either following me and following the way of God, or you are following the way of the world. And his, his verb, which actually he says, or you're following the way of Satan. John 8, 44, Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. And so none of us will walk around and say, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just hanging with the devil. You know, I'm just doing my thing with, with Satan. You know, nobody would say that. Nobody would acknowledge that's not how it goes. We wouldn't even really think to affiliate us following our own desires as doing what Satan wants us to do. We wouldn't even affiliate that. But Jesus draws the line and says, either you are doing my will, you are following what I say, or you are doing what Satan wants you to do. And I think that's strong because there's really no relation. Either you're a friend to God or you're a friend to the world. You are a friend to Satan. You guys remember the phrase, uh, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Anybody agree with that statement? Um, I, I really do agree with that statement because if you think about it, friendship is very unique. So family, right? You grow up in your family. You're born into a family. You don't get to choose your family, right? You love your family. You could hate your family. You know, I don't recommend that, but you could, you know? And it's like, it's like you have no choice. They are your family, right? You think about marriage. You know, I'm not married, but you think about marriage and it's like, you know, you, you, you do choose your spouse, you know, but then the day comes, you know, I've talked to married people. The day comes and you're like, why, why are we still together? It's like, oh, well, there's a covenant, you know? Hopefully that day doesn't come. You know, you don't ask that question. Why are we still together? <laughs> 
But, but in friendship, friendship is unique because friendship is strictly by choice. All my friends I hang with is strictly by choice. I don't, I don't have any obligation to my friends. I choose my friends. And the rest of verse 4, he says, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And if we flip, if we flip that verse and see what, what he's saying in reverse, anyone who chooses to be a friend of God becomes an enemy of the world. Don't you know that friendship with God means hatred toward the world? And when you think about it like that, it almost becomes very clear. It's like, do I hate the world? Do I hate the evil systems of the world? Do I hate bitterness that's in my life? Do I hate injustice? Do I hate my own personal sin? Do I actually hate my own personal sin? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of God will hate their own personal sin. They will hate the evil system. What's amazing, though, and what's inspiring, what's encouraging, what's fulfilling about this is is verse 6 comes not too long after, and he says, but he gives us more grace. We're going to follow back on on the thought of of friendship, but he gives us more grace, right? I want us to think about this real quick. What, What is harder to do? What's harder to do? Is it harder to jump off of a cliff, or is it harder to pull somebody up from that same cliff? It's harder to pull somebody up. Easy to jump, hard to pull somebody up. And for the sake of the illustration, it's kind of like God, God is on the cliff. My bad. God is on the cliff. Um, and our sin separated us from God. Therefore, we jumped off the cliff, right? It's kind of like we jumped off of this cliff and we're falling. And our sin kind of continues to separate us from God. We are continually falling. It's like there's this cliff and we continually fall. As we sin, as we live in our sin, there's this fall. There's no, no, no ground. We're not hitting anything. We just keep falling, right? Just imagine you just still falling. It's dark, you know. We're still falling. Um, and so God in his love and his mercy sent Jesus on the cross. And so because he loved us, Next to us, while we're falling, is this rope. As long as we've been falling, we see this rope. And as long as we are going to fall, we're going to see this rope, right? It's right next to us, but we're just falling, looking up at the, at the cliff, but there's this rope right next to us. And when we think about God's love and we think about his mercy and how he pursues us and his grace, but he gives us more grace. That rope is a representation of God's grace. God says, I want you to come back up to this cliff. I want you to be with me. Your sin has separated you from me in increasing measure. As I continue to live in my sin, I continue to get farther and fall away farther from that cliff from God. But that rope is there. God says, my grace is here for you. My grace is sufficient. But in order for me to receive that grace, I need to realize that I'm actually falling. I need to realize that my sin actually is separating me from God. That like my sin really does mean that I am off that cliff. I'm not with God. If I don't realize that I'm not falling, then I will never realize that I need to grab this rope. I will never realize that I actually need God's grace in my life. If I don't realize that I have, that my sin is separating me from God. The Bible has verbiage for the people 
who recognize that sin and they see their sin before a holy God and they recognize it and they're like, wow, I need God's grace. The Bible will call those people humble. But in order for me, um, but if I think that I'm okay, or I think that my sin isn't that bad, or I compare my sin to other people's sin and I'm like, well, they do this and I do this, so I'm not that bad, whatever the case. If I begin to justify in my own mind, my own sin and the life that I'm living in before God, however, or if I'm just blatantly just disregarding what the Bible has to say, if I do that, if I think that, well, my sin actually, is it really separating me from God in increasing measure? Is my sin really that bad? If I disregard it, the Bible would say that those people are proud. Because we look at our sin in our life and we, before a holy God and we think that, well, my sin isn't that bad. Or it just doesn't, I just don't want to deal with it. Or I'm just not going to do with it right now. Humble people recognize their need for God's grace. Proud people disregard their need for God's grace. Or they, they take the sin, the weight out of their sin. And don't see the strong. Verse 6, he goes on, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's who he's talking about. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Those people who think, well, my sin isn't that bad. Well, it's like I, I probably could do some things better. It's like, well, I really don't think that I need to, I don't need to handle this area right now. I don't need to work on this area right now. I don't need to look this in the face. And God, I don't, I don't really want to come to you. I want to continue doing my thing. God opposes the proud. He opposes that. And that word, Greek word for opposes actually means to go to war with. So God looks at that person, even when he lets their heed, God says, you are sinful and you need my grace. God looks at them and, and, and when they say, I'm good, he, God actually goes to war with that person. God allows that person to keep falling. But he gives grace to the humble. And that's amazing because God looks at us in our sin in the same way and he's like, I want you to know who I am. I want you to grab this rope. Please accept my grace. Please come back. Be humble. Recognize your sin. Accept my grace. Come to me. And what's amazing is God doesn't leave us in the dark for what that looks like. Okay, what does it look like to receive God's grace? What does it actually look like for me to grab the rope? God doesn't leave us in the dark with us to just guess on what it looks like. Verse 7, he then goes in, submit yourselves then to God. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. A humble response to understanding God's grace in our life and our natural state of sin that separates us is to submit ourselves to God. That's amazing because when we submit ourselves to God and we come near to God, the rest of verse seven, come near to God or verse eight, come near to God and he will come near to you. And let's not miss this about grace. Grace is way stronger than sin. So it's not like grace is like um, it just cancels out our sin. Grace is way stronger than sin. Grace shatters sin. Grace and sin are not on the same playing field, but he gives us more grace. It's harder to pull somebody up than it is to jump off the cliff. God, grace, God gives way more grace than he does. Um, he gives way more grace in order to save us. Grace won't lose. That's why that verse 7 makes so much sense. Submit yourselves then to God. 
Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. When I submit myself to God and I come near to him, um, and I come near to him, Satan, and I resist the devil, the devil flees and God comes near. That is grace. But I have to understand that I need that. If I come near to God, he will come near to me. If I resist the devil, he will flee from me. Sin has no hold on grace. Grace is way stronger than our sin. And if we submit ourselves to God, we will experience that. And what's cool about it is that God can't wait to be gracious. He cannot wait to reveal himself. He can't wait. Verse 5, he jealously longs for the spirit he calls to live and to dwell in us. He calls to dwell in us. God longs. He longs for us to know who he is. He longs. He he has a jealous spirit that's inside of us who says, come to me because what you're living for in the world is not worth it. It It doesn't like you. It, my sin don't care about you. I care about you. I have grace for you. I am, I'm a jealous God. I want you. Although you don't want me, although you want friendship with the world, I want your friendship. I want you. God cannot wait for us to be humble and submit our whole life to him and come near to him in every area. He then goes on in verse 9. He's still kind of describing it, breaking it down. He says, wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. I like double-minded there because it's kind of like I have one foot in the world, but then I have one foot in the God. It's like, God, I, I, I do. I, I know, God, I know that I, I like you and I, I love you. I would say that outwardly because it'd sound bad if I said I really didn't love you. You know, it'd sound bad. But in the inside, like I am just, I'm in the world and I know I am. And, you know, and I desire that. And that's where my heart is. He says, he says wash your hands, you double-minded. He says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. And what he means that grieve, mourn, and well is look at your sin. Look at how your sin is separating you from me. Look at what your sin has done to you. Look at what sin has done to the world. Look on the inside of you. Grieve, mourn, and well. Change your laughter. A lot of times people just use laughter and jokes to cover up a lot of things that are going on on the inside. I got a buddy who cracks jokes all the time. Because it just kind of keeps everything on the surface. It kind of keeps everything on the surface. Because he doesn't want people to get to the next layer. But if we press pause and think about our sin before God, and we actually think about our state, James says, grieve, mourn, and well, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. If we really sit there and think about that, our laughter will stop. Because we will see that we've offended a holy God. We will see that, wow, I am, I am so far off. That's what James is acknowledging. He's like, look at that. Look at yourself. And then verse 10 continues right after, therefore, or not therefore, but just humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. If we sit there long enough and we grieve and think about our sin long enough and we think about our state and how our desires want to go to the world, if we think about that long enough, clearly we're not going to just marinate on that every single day. God wants us to be joyful. You know, that's also in the Bible. He wants us to be joyful always, pray, continue. Also, God wants the best life for us, but he also wants us to sit and acknowledge that reality. And when we acknowledge that reality, the only thing we really have left to do is humble ourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. God will lift us up, and he can't wait to do so. We see this picture in, um, in the prodigal son. 
an amazing illustration. I feel like that, that ties perfectly into this. It's like, well, the prodigal son was, was blessed, um, was blessed, was blessed uh, with, with this inheritance, right? Looked out, saw something else. In the beginning of this chapter in James, it says, you covet and kill, but you do not get what you want. That word covet, it means you look and you see something that you want. It's envy. Okay, I'm going to go get it. I see something I want, I'm going to go get it. That's what the prodigal son did. He saw something he wanted and he went out and got it. Left his country, left his inheritance, left his father, turned his back, right? Went out, took everything that he had, everything he'd been given, went out and kind of just, you know, was just uh, doing his thing out here, right? The Bible says he squandered all that he had. We don't know what the, what, how much time this, this happened. Could have been 30 years. Ended up squandering after 30 years. It could have been five years. It could have been two years. But we do know at some point he squandered all that he had. And then there was a famine in that land, in that country at the time. Then what happens? Well, then he finds work at this guy, um, probably a, a, local, a local farmer, you know, best way I would describe it. Bible don't say that, but I say that. Local farmer. Local farmer. And the, the, this guy puts him in the, in the pig pen. <laughs> And he's working with pigs. And, I, and we don't know how long he was working with pigs. It could have been five years. It could have been 10 years. But he's working with pigs. But then the next thing the Bible says describing this is that, wow, he came to a realization. Wow. My father's hired servants are living way better than this. <laughs> my father's hired servants are living way better than this. I was a son and his hired servants are living better than this. I am, I am in, here with pigs. He recognized the situation. The first, first thing that needs to happen is us recognizing our situation, is recognizing where we are before God, is recognizing the sin in our life. Grieve, mourn, and well. Think about where, where we are before God. Then that happens. Well, then he did something about it. Got up and went home. Left his situation. Said, okay, I'm not going to keep living like this when I don't have to, and I got something better for me. Back at the house, shame, kind of scared. I'm like, I don't know what my dad is going to do when I get home, but how does his father, we all know how his father sees him, what he does when he comes to him, when he meets him. He doesn't even let him get to the porch. He meets him when he sees him, runs out to him, gives him a big hug. Bible says he was full of compassion to see his son. My son has come home. We throwing a feast. Get the food. Hey, go get the meat. Set the table, you know? My son has come home. And it's so crazy. That's how God really looks at us. God is like, come home. God really longs for that. He wants that. God is. And, and, and you would think about a holy God who we've turned our back on. We think about the shame of our sin. We think about how why, us wanting to be friends with the world. Why would God want us that badly to be friends with? God loves us so much, and he cannot wait to show his grace to us. Isaiah 30, 18, it says, yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. But I'm going to end with this. This is not, this thought is not just a one-time thing. Yes, if I've never given my life fully over to Jesus as my Lord and Savior, if I've never actually turned from my sin and said, God, I'm going to follow you now. I want to live a life of following Jesus. I don't want my life of sin. I want to turn from you and follow you. Yes, that needs to happen. I need to accept Jesus into my heart. Yes, that is a one-time decision. 
that needs to happen. But then this is a continual everyday thing. I see oftentimes in my life, my heart wants to wander off toward the, some of the things of the world. Some of the things of the world get look appealing sometimes. And I have to turn from those things. I have to turn to God. I have to evaluate my life often. I live in the world. I'm not in heaven. I want heaven. I, I, I love God. I'm in the word, but my desires and who I am oftentimes just gets pulled by the things that I'm around, you know, and I have to turn from those every day. And I want us to think about the things like, what are those things that, that we get pulled toward? Am I, am, am, I, am I just following my own way in life, going through the motions, not really thinking about it and need to turn to God's way? Every single day. It's, it's, it's like I have to just come, come, come back to God because I am just prone to wandering off. So every day, I need to look at my potential. Every, every day, I need to look at my sin, at least, at least look at it. Where is it? Get it out. You know, get it out of my life. I don't, I don't want that. God, help me get it out. Every day is a pursuit. Resist the devil. That's every day. Come near to God. That's every day. I learn God. I, I get to know God better. It's every day. How God longs to draw near to us. Most, most of our friendship with the world comes because we've lost sight of how much God loves us. Most of our friendship with the world comes because we've lost sight of how much God loves us, how much he wants to pour out his grace on us. Or we've lost sight of how off we are, how much sin there is in our life. God longs for that. He jealously longs for that. And when we fully realize how loved we are, it is a drastic difference. It's like we're sitting in a dark room and somebody just flooded the lights on. You know, light, everything just comes on. We fully realize like how much God loves us, even in the midst of, of our sin and our own desire to want to be friends with the world. But God gives more grace 